Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Before we turn to our sermon text this morning, I wanted to say just a few things that came to mind as I was thinking about things this morning. It's 20 years ago that God visited our country with just death and destruction in a way that many of us remember. And uh, I just wanted to encourage you to uh, read the transcript of Todd Beamer's call on, uh, from United Flight 93, with your sons especially. Read that transcript, and uh, we did it last night at uh, dinner, and there are a couple times when it, you choke up trying to get through it. But that was a man who is prepared to act. And it's just so encouraging to have an example of that. Apparently he was a Christian. He and the person he called on the ground prayed together before his famous words, you know, let's roll. And so you can find that transcript online. But I would encourage you to take that up and encourage uh, encourage your sons, your daughters, uh, especially your sons, to be prepared to take action. They may be in a circumstance similar to that, different but similar, and, uh, and they need to be prepared to give up their lives to save other lives. Uh, that's what our Savior did. The other thing I want to mention is uh, in reading that psalm, Psalm 35, Did you notice in the psalm that, that David is going through all the ways that the, these enemies have risen up against him and afflicted him and, and tried to destroy him and bring him down? But in the midst of it, he's praying for them. Right? He says he's bowing his knees. He's crying out for them. He's, he's trying to bless them, and they're repaying him with, with uh, destruction. Well, uh, Yesterday at the uh, abortion clinic, it was, it was a mess out there. There were a bunch of people, activists, pro-death activists that came down from Charlotte. Operation Save America, the brothers from Operation Save America were supposed to be there, and these activists got wind of it, so they came down from Charlotte. And uh, there up on the high ground, the hill, Men were preaching the gospel, and there was just lions around them, beating drums and trying to get them to, uh, just getting in their face, trying to get them to be quiet. And, uh, and, I, just, and I just thought about the fact that, that all those men up there preaching the gospel were attempting to bless their enemies, right? They were attempting to love those who were expressing all kinds of hatred toward them. Right? And everybody there who, who was trying to avert people away from, from slaughtering their children were doing acts of mercy. And the, the vile, disgusting response of, of pagans to that was um, stark. And so if you, if you want to be snapped out of your sleep your spiritual sleep that we all fall into. We just, we, we forget that there's a spiritual battle going on, right? We just go from, 
from work to Starbucks to work to Starbucks and forget that there's a spiritual battle going on. Go out there on a Saturday morning, right? They're not all like that. Some are boring, and there's nothing going on, right? And you can pray and talk to the people trying to go in. But other days, it's, it, it's a clear picture of spiritual battle that's going on. And that is good for your soul to be in the midst of that because you feel humiliated, right? When somebody gets up in your face and starts shouting obscenities at you and calling you a, a rape apologist and uh, those, who, those who support forced birth and, and all these absurdities. And, and you have to sit there and take insult after insult after insult and only respond with, with kindness and love and the gospel. It's humiliating. And that's so good for each one of us. It's so good to be beaten down and humbled. And you'll be beaten down and humbled there, right? If you can't control your anger, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't go on a day like that because it, is, it, it will fill you with anger. Um, but it, it should fill you with pity, right? It should fill you with pity. And so um, go, go down there. Be a part of this. Wake, wake yourself up to the spiritual battle that's going on every day. And... Uh, and it'll be an encouragement to those brothers who are laboring out there doing hard, hard work um, day after day. So uh, the psalm made me think of that, and I just wanted to mention it, that yesterday was, uh, was one of those doozies of a day out there. Well, let's go, to, let's go to John chapter 6 and stand for the reading of God's word. And we're going to... Take one verse, John chapter 6, verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the words of my mouth. Father, I pray that you would set aflame by your spirit the words that I have prepared. And Father, that you would build up your church, that you would sanctify your people by the preaching of your word, that you would humble us and exalt us, Father, that you would... Uh, bring us down and build us up, Lord, and that you would, you would bless. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Now stick with me on this one. Stick with me on this one. A text returns to the scene of Jesus' miracle, right? He's just fed the 5,000. Now, um, last Sunday, you might remember that I, I emphasized the unbelief of the people, right? Even though verse 14 says that they were proclaiming Jesus to, to be the prophet who came into the world, 
The rest of this chapter, the rest of chapter 6, reveals that the people follow Jesus simply because they want what? They want physical bread, right? They want welfare. They want stimulus. They want handouts. That's what they want from Jesus. They like the earthly benefits that come from Jesus' presence. That's what they like. That's what they want. It's revealed in the rest of the chapter. We'll get to that in subsequent weeks. The truth is pounded home by the first verse in our passage today. It's a verse that we often, you know, perhaps you've read over it and haven't really noticed this verse. After receiving the bread and the fish from Jesus, proclaiming he is a prophet, what do the people want to do? Well, the text says, So Jesus, perceiving that they intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And so the the people have been filled with bread, they've been satisfied with fish, and they don't want that to end. They don't want that to come to a close. To ensure that it does not run out, they intend to take Jesus by force and make him the king of Israel. Make him the king of Israel. He is already the king of Israel. Right? Is he not? He is the descendant of David. And he is the fulfillment of those promises of God that the throne of God, the throne of Israel, the throne of David would never, would, would never be without an occupant, right? That it would be established forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. Now, why would Jesus resist this movement of the people? Right? Why, if he is king, would he not reign over his, his earthly political entity? Why would he not do that? Why would he not take his throne, rule with, with justice and truth, force out the wicked Romans, and set up the political kingdom of, that our, our post-millennial friends long for? Why? Why pass over this opportunity? It's extraordinary opportunity. Well, here's Calvin's explanation. And I'm leaning heavily on Calvin today, so just gird your loins to listen to Calvin. Okay? I, I love John Calvin. Have you noticed that? Why do I love John Calvin? Because he was a pastor before he was anything else. And so when he writes, he writes like something is at stake, okay? And so, anyway, that's my Calvin apology. (laughs) Double intended. Um, Here's Calvin's explanation. He says, first of all, that it was not the people's prerogative to be kingmakers. Quoting Psalm 2.6, I have appointed my king on my holy hill of Zion, Calvin says that the liberty of making a king belongs to God alone. It's not for the people to make this decision. Second, Calvin says that the people were concerned about an earthly kingdom, a kingdom which was utterly inconsistent with Christ's person, his eternal person, 
right? To put Jesus on an earthly throne would be to diminish his glory. He is the king of kings, not merely the king of some acreage on the earth. Third, Calvin says, zeal like we see in this passage is a great insult to God. Not thinking rightly about Christ or his kingdom or their reasons for wanting Christ as their earthly king, they are essentially attacking Christ's glory. They're attacking him in doing this. Fourth, Calvin says, if Christ had allowed himself to be made king, his spiritual kingdom... Okay, you're going to hear that word a lot today. Those two words, spiritual kingdom. His spiritual kingdom would have been ruined. The gospel would have been stamped with everlasting infamy. And the hope of salvation would have been utterly destroyed. Not to put too fine a point on it, right? If they had succeeded in putting him on the throne of this earthly kingdom, it would have destroyed salvation. How so? Christ would not have been crucified. Christ would not have been crucified, thereby obtaining um, by that uh, the triumph over death and sin and Satan that is salvation. In other words, if Jesus had called on those legions of angels at his command in order to protect his earthly throne, he would have avoided crucifixion. crucifixion. There would have been no triumph over death over Satan, over the real enemy, there would have only been victory over Rome. Fifth, Calvin says, the text says they wished to take Jesus by force, meaning this maneuver would have been against Christ's will. If they had to do it by force, then Christ wouldn't have been going along with them. An application he brings out of this is that we should never offer to God honors invented by ourselves. We don't make up honors for God. We honor him by doing the things that he has told us to do. Right? If we do see we are chargeable with using some sort of force in violence, if we, if we do that, we are chargeable with using some force in violence toward him. Instead, we ought to obey him, which is the foundation of true worship, right? Obedience. Sixth, Calvin says, they learned from the word of God that he who promised to be the redeemer would be a king, but out of their own head they contrive an earthly kingdom. And they assign to him a kingdom contrary to the word of God. Thus, whenever we mix up our own opinions with the word of God, faith degenerates into frivolous conjectures. Let me say that again. Whenever we mix up our own opinions with the word of God, faith degenerates into conjecture. Then he concludes with this. He says, It is astonishing that 5,000 men should have been seized with such daring presumption that they did not hesitate by making a new king to provoke against themselves Pilate's army and the vast power of the Roman Empire. And it is certain that they would never have gone so far if they had not, relying on the predictions of the prophets, hoped that God would be on their side and consequently that they would overcome. But still, they went wrong in contriving a kingdom of the prophets of which the prophets had never spoken. 
They contrived a kingdom that the prophets had never even dreamed of. Right? So far are they from having the hand of God favorable to aid their undertaking that on the contrary, Christ withdraws. Christ goes away. Christ gets away from all human beings. He gets away by himself alone. Now think about that. Were Christ's kingdom an earthly kingdom, would he have withdrawn at this opportunity? Jesus' closest disciples were confused about the same issue. Remember when the apostle Peter right, draws his sword to protect Jesus when Judas and the Romans show up to arrest him. What is Jesus' response? He says to Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And I believe they would take out the Romans, right? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Jesus says. And, and think about when Jesus stands before the, the Roman power Pilate. He does two things. He does not deny that he is a king, right? He affirms to Pilate that he's a king. Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus responds, you say correctly that I am a king. He doesn't deny it, right? He is a king. Even so, what does the king then say about his kingdom? He's not a king of nothing. He is the king of a kingdom. But he then speaks about the nature of his kingdom. He says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Now, why is that good news for, for Christians in Jesus' time? And why is that good news for Christians now, right? Why is it good news that when the people wanted to make Christ king, he withdrew from them and would not allow it? Right? Because the kingdoms of the world, like all things that are earthly, are weak and changeable. Do you hear that? All the kingdoms of this world are weak and changeable. They rise and they fall. They suffer attack and are upset. They struggle and contend with one another. Christ's kingdom is not like that at all. Right? It is heavenly. It is a spiritual kingdom. When Jesus spoke to Pilate, he was essentially saying, I am no threat to you, Pilate, to your earthly kingdom as an earthly king. That's essentially what he's saying to Pilate. I'm no threat to your earthly kingdom, Pilate. In fact, I'm going to submit to you and die. My kingdom is of a completely different order. My kingdom is of a, of a higher order, of a completely higher order. And as the people who live on earth 
and in political orders, that should give us great comfort. Right? That should give us great comfort. There's a kingdom that transcends the kingdoms that are just a drop in the bucket, right? Those kingdoms that are a drop in the bucket like the Roman Empire, the British Empire, the Chinese Empire, the Ottoman Empire, drops in a bucket. The American Empire, not even a drop in the bucket. Like it, like it, it, it's going to evaporate. It's so little. Right? Christ's kingdom, on the other hand, will remain firm even while tyrants reign and kingdoms once glorious totter and fall. Calvin says, if we are cruelly treated by wicked men, still our salvation is secured by the kingdom of Christ, which is not subject at all to the caprice of men. In short, though there are innumerable storms by which the world is continually agitated, the kingdom of Christ in which we ought to seek tranquility, is separated from the world. Jesus resisted the demotion that this crowd desired to give him. Jesus had already resisted Satan's offer to give him the kingdoms of the world. Do you remember that? When he is tempted in the desert, what does is, what is Satan offer him? The kingdoms of the world. Because Jesus was the king of a kingdom not of this world. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will eventually swallow up the kingdoms of the world. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. Ryle, quoting some other guy, makes this point, which I find interesting, given the debates we are having about tyranny. He says, the Jews were very sensitive about the tyranny and dominion of the Romans. While they did not feel the far greater tyranny and dominion of sin. We who are expecting the second advent of Christ in the present day should take care that we increasingly feel the burden and yoke of sin from which Christ's second advent will deliver the creation. Otherwise, Christ's second advent will do us no more good, listen to this, than the first advent did to the Jews. Whoa. Now that's an astonishing statement. Let me say it again. We who are expecting the second advent of Christ in the present day should take care that we increasingly feel the burden and yoke of sin from which Christ's second advent will deliver the creation. Otherwise, Christ's second advent will do us no more good than his first advent did to the Jews. I mean, you imagine it, it, it'd be kind of like Jesus comes back and, and we just want him to, to be president. That's an astonishing thing that Ryle says. Why do I think it's astonishing? The point that is being made is that if we mistake Christ's kingdom for an earthly kingdom, our first concern will not be the ravages of sin and the reality of the judgment to come, but rather our concern will be the scourges of tyranny and injustice as they apply to earthly tranquility. 
That will be our first concern. If tyranny and injustice become our main concerns rather than sin against a holy God, then whether we have those concerns because we are Reconstructionist theonomists, woke evangelicals, or, or social justice warriors, we'll be missing the point. And so when Christ returns to judge each man according to his sins, those expecting an earthly kingdom, just like the Jews in the first century, will miss Christ's purpose and the purpose of his heavenly kingdom. Now, I'm, I'm doing some juggling, right? I've got I've to run a fine line here. I hope you understand that. Our continual temptation, man's continual, continual temptation is to prefer political power to spiritual power. That's always our temptation. And, and, and why is that? Because we can see it. We can touch it. We can vote. Right? We wish the church, for example, did have the power of the sword. We wish the church had the power of the sword. The church today seems to envy the state's coercive power. Right? They have coercive power. God has given it to them. And, we, and the church sits here and envies the state. Right? Yes, we, 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 are, we are all rightfully conscious of the state's tendency to overuse her sword. Think of Biden's recent vaccine mandates. Right? But... Our reaction to such overreach should not be to make the church into something she is not. Right? Christ's kingdom is spiritual and is concerned with repentance, faith, and rebirth. Those are the things she is concerned with. These things are glorious, but so many people today seem to be more enamored with political renovation, statecraft, lawfulness, and Jesus reigning as president prime minister or potentate of an earthly kingdom. The kingdom of God is about forgiveness of sins and righteousness and eternal life. And that's boring to us. The kingdom of God has two great events, Jesus coming for the purpose of salvation and Jesus second coming for the purpose of judgment. One, and, and when he judges, no one will be disappointed. Right? One is for preparation, the other is for completion. This kingdom has come and is coming, but we are impatient, aren't we? we? We like to think we can usher in the kingdom of God through our own efforts. We like to think that, that if we offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world, if we went to him and tried to force him to be king, he'd oblige us today. We think the kingdom of God is eating and drinking like those Jews did after Jesus fed them. But as scripture says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's so hard for us to be patient. It's hard for us to serve that which we haven't held in our own hands and seen with our own eyes. It is hard for us to live by faith and not by sight. But the, but the nature of Christ's kingdom forces us to live by faith. It forces our faith. 
right? Christ's kingship is spiritual in nature. It is above the political realm. It is heavenly. This is not a diminishment of his kingdom, right? It's just the opposite. Being spiritual, it is eternal. Being spiritual, it is unchangeable. Being spiritual, it is not subject to any of the whims of man, right? Christ's kingdom being spiritual allows us to patiently pass through this life with its misery, its hunger, its cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, COVID and tyranny, content with this one thing that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our sinful, will provide our needs until our warfare ends and we are called to triumph, right? Such is the nature of his rule that he shares with us all that he has received from the Father. That's the nature of his kingdom. And you want Jesus as president? That's a shorthand way of saying you want God's law as our laws? I guess in the end, this, this, this is a long way of saying that be careful of turning the political into the only thing worth pursuing. Right? I know I am simplifying life right now. I'm making it way too simple. But the fact that Jesus withdrew and refused to be the king of the land was a rebuke to the political aspirations of these miracle-observing Jews who saw Jesus as, as a way of producing political peace and were blind to his coming to save them from their sins. Every crisis that comes along will out-professing Christians who believe solutions are to be found in politics as opposed to faith. Right? Every crisis that comes along will out-professing Christians who see Christ as the armistice between man and man rather than seeing Christ as the armistice between a holy God and sinful man. COVID and everything going along with it, quarantines, masks, and vaccination, have revealed the church's worldliness. How do I know that? Because, how do I know that? Because the church has yet to bring prayer into the house of God. It has brought complaining. It has brought education on constitutional law and eschatological imaginings. Right? But it has not brought a spirit of prayer into the church. Right? And that always indicates that we are perfectly happy working things out on our own. Without relying upon God. And so the church is more ready to announce political idiocy than she is to pray that God would be merciful to his people by giving them rulers who love him. Right? We're just, we we like to rail. We'd rather, you know, cite statistics than bend our knees in humble reliance upon God, asking him to give us faith and courage and protection and wisdom. Right? We banter about stats which are notoriously unreliable and open to interpretation. 
Right? We are like those Jews we read about in John 6. Our hope is set more in Jesus who would rescue us from oppression than a Jesus who would rescue us from our sins. The worst oppression. Right? If the political is your main concern, you will fashion a Jesus after the rulers of the world and you will make the kingdoms of the world, you will mistake the kingdoms of the world for the kingdom of heaven, which is not of this world. It is a serious error based upon a love for this world. It is to mistake sight for faith. It is to live for this world and not for the world to come. It is to love this world rather than hate the world. Right? It is to be American before it's to be a Christian and a citizen of heaven. It is to diminish Christ in his current reign over a kingdom that transcends this world. Right? It is to make imminent that which is transcendent. Imagine if Jesus hadn't withdrawn from those Jews who wanted to make him king. Imagine if he went along with it. They pick him up. They put him on, you know, their shoulders and they travel to Jerusalem. They anoint him king and they're shouting around him, long live the king, long live the king. Then Jesus, thrilled to have finally set aside his meekness, began acting like Constantine, fashioning shields, baptizing by throwing water on crowds, commanding that the Romans be engaged in battle and yelling, of course, freedom as he led the charge. Imagine if Jesus took his cues from King Solomon or King David, and again, he engaged in battle to quell the injustice of the Roman occupying force, what would it all indicate? It would all indicate a complete diminishment of Christ's kingship. It would indicate a diminishment of Christ's calling and a diminishment of Christ's kingdom. He, he would merely be an earthly ruler. But as it is, as it is now, his kingdom transcends this world, it overwhelms this world, it supersedes this world. His kingdom is eternal and everlasting, it is boundless, it is over all creation. He, he reigns over every bit of his creation. He fought against the forces that were arrayed against mankind, that were arrayed against you, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And he satisfied the anger of his father towards sin. Would we really prefer that Jesus be our president so that we could de-spiritualize Christianity so as to make it more relevant? Ugh. And again, I'm walking a fine line here, right? Don't take what I'm saying today and conclude I or Trinity doesn't care about the political and abortion and sexuality and gay marriage and transgender genital mutilation, about government overreach, about tyranny, about oppression, right? About justice, we do. We care deeply about those things, and if you, if you ask us, we, we can show you our battle wounds. 
I, I have spoken for the preborn before our state senators and representatives. I've spoken in the rotunda of the state house. I've spent hundreds of hours outside the abortion clinic. I exhorted many pastors in previous denomination to love their neighbors who are preborn or weighed down with sin, both of which things have ramifications for politics. Okay, I get that. But we do so as Christians, as strangers and aliens living in a foreign world, as citizens of heaven, as those who have been rescued from the world. We do not do these works as conservatives or Republicans for sure, or even Americans, right? Or as those who have reduced all of life down to one kingdom when Christ speaks of two kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world and his kingdom that is not of this world. Many want to say that Christ's kingdom will be here when the laws we live under reflect his laws. That is to conflate the kingdoms of this earth with his kingdom, which is spiritual, eternal, sovereign, above, above otherworldly, heavenly. Right? We do not want a king for a worldly kingdom. We have a king of a spiritual kingdom. He reigns now from his exalted right, vantage point after triumphing over death in his glorious resurrection. There is no other king like that. And when he comes again, he will strike down the nations with the sword that comes from his mouth. And his kingdom will be handed by him to his God and Father. At which point all earthly rule and authority and power will have been abolished. Every enemy, the last of which is not the nations of this earth and her rulers but death itself will be put under his feet. And then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. And that verse blows our minds. Jesus subjected to the Father? That's glorious. That is all of history, right? That is glorious. That is the Christian hope. That is what wacko Christians like us believe. Get this. Again, stealing from Calvin because he says, because Christ has eternal power, the perpetuity of the church is secure in his protection. Amid the violent agitation with which it is continually troubled, amid the grievous and frightful storms that threaten it with unnumbered calamities, it still remains safe. David laughs at the boldness of his enemies who try to throw off the yoke of God and his anointed and says, The kings and people rage in vain, for he who dwells in heaven is strong enough to break their assaults. Psalm 2. Thus he assures the godly of the everlasting preservation of the church and encourages them to hope whenever it happens to be oppressed. Christ's kingdom is out of reach. 
Christ's kingdom is out of reach of the powers of this world and even of the devil. It's out of reach. Calvin, again, leaning on Calvin. Pay attention. Calvin then says this. We have said that we can perceive the force and usefulness of Christ's kingship only when we recognize it to be spiritual. This is clear enough from the fact that while we must fight throughout life under the cross, our condition is harsh and wretched. What then would it profit us to be gathered under the reign of the heavenly king unless beyond this earthly life we were certain of enjoying its benefits? For this reason, we ought to know that the happiness promised us in Christ does not consist in outward advantages, such as leading a joyous and peaceful life, having rich possessions, being safe from all harm, and abounding with delights, such as the flesh commonly longs after. No, our happiness belongs to the heavenly life. In the world, the prosperity and well-being of a people depend partly on abundance of all good things and domestic peace, partly on strong defenses that protect them from outside attacks. In like manner, Christ enriches his people with all things necessary for the eternal salvation of souls and fortifies them with courage to stand unconquerable against all the assaults of spiritual enemies." Right? It is precisely because his kingdom is spiritual that we have security. Right? It is precisely because his kingdom is spiritual that we have such boldness in the world. Those Jews that day in Israel were mistaken to think that they could have Christ as their king if they merely seated him on some throne and shouted, Long live the king. No, that, that would would not put them into Christ's kingdom at all. Because to enter Christ's kingdom, one must be born again. One must be regenerated, as John has repeatedly been saying throughout this book already. Christ reigns now, and you are citizens of his kingdom. You do not need to wait for a re-established theocracy at the end of the ages. Okay, so when I boil this all down, why am I so concerned about all of this? And this, this is it. And, and I, I'm just one idiot. I'm just one idiot. A dumb ox. I'm concerned about this because I see a church that is increasingly worldly. On the one side, you have a church that goes after things like revoice and wants to be gay. Right? These are the sensualists. They go this way for the world. On the other side, you have a church that, to put it bluntly, wants a theocracy with laws that are directly drawn from the Old Testament without any adaptation to our body politic. Right? These are the theonomists. These are the reconstructionist theonomists. I posted the following comment to my social media page. I said, were they able, some of today's Christian belligerators, and by that I mean Reconstructionist theonomists, would take Jesus by force to make him president, prime minister, or potentate, thinking this would somehow be an upgrade for or honor for him. The first comment I received 
after I poked with that was this. It would be an upgrade for the earth, not Jesus. You think? Now think about that. Would it be an upgrade for the earth if Jesus was the president of the United States or the president of Zimbabwe or the president of the United Nations or the prime minister of Australia? Right? You see, people don't like to put their faith in things they don't see. Right? People don't have faith for his spiritual reign from heaven. People want to see and touch and see the legal dominance of, of King Jesus. They don't want to be strangers and aliens in this world. They, don't, they, don't, they want to be citizens of the world. They don't want to be plucked out of this world. They want to be the political power of this world and usher in the kingdom. You know, and then, again, I'm walking a line here. You got that on one side, you got radical two kingdom guys on the other side that, that think that Christ's kingdom has no impact on the world at all. Pfft, bad. Right? What will be the end result of this? The end result will be a decaying church. That's what it will be. It'll be a decaying church. If the kingdom of God consists in laws and statecraft and nation building, then the church and her pulpits and spiritual power will be viewed as boring and weak, perhaps even superfluous. There will be a, perhaps unconscious at first, move away from preaching to politics. There will be a perhaps unconscious at first move from influence through heart conversion to influence through legal purification. In a nutshell, the danger will be moving from faith in Christ to a new form of pharisaical religion. Do you guys care about this? Do you care about the pulpit in the world? Do you care about Christ's kingdom, his spiritual kingdom in this world? You should. We, we do not want Jesus as our president, like those Jews on that day in Bethsaida. Right? We do not want Jesus to be our president so things start to go our way. <laughs> I think if Jesus were our president, he'd destroy us. That would be his first action. Right? We have a king of a spiritual kingdom that is not of this world who will one day, that king one day will vindicate every form of suffering his children have gone through as they followed in his train of suffering, right? He will vindicate them. Wait for his vindication. Don't think that your anger can achieve the righteousness of God. It can't. Right? It can't. And one thing we do when we're angry is try to take matters into our own hands. And what is theocracy other than trying to take matters into our own hands? Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We thank you for King Jesus.
We thank you that he reigns, that he is over all authorities. And when he returns, he will, he will abolish every authority that remains, and he will be all in all. Father, we, th- we, we pray and ask that you would forgive us for, for veering away from the, the, the glorious teaching of your scripture on Christ's spiritual kingdom in, in many ways, Father. Some of us are sensualists. Some of us want legal structures. Father, some of us want to just withdraw and be aloof and to, to abandon our neighbors. But Father, the reality of your kingdom should give us great courage in the world. It should give us great patience as we suffer, which has been promised to us, that we would suffer and be sanctified, that we would suffer as Christ has suffered, that we would, we would fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would, we would every day be ready for your return And that would give us great compassion to evangelize. That would give us great courage to suffer under persecution. Father, that that would give us great hope that we would live by faith, not by sight. Father, that we would, would, Lord, trust in you with our whole heart. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is, is transcendent, that it is above it is the authority of authorities we thank you that you are the king of kings and the lord of lords we praise you as that reigning king father i pray i pray that this this truth would would sink down into our hearts that it would that it would help us to be those who are wise and understand their times And pray that we would we would have the optimism of knowing that you reign over all. Father, I pray that, that your church would would not cast a longing eye to the world, but that she would know that she is she is your kingdom here on earth, that she is she is the one that, that announces that there is the spiritual kingdom. And she's the one who invites the nations in. Our Father, we pray that you would, you would bless us richly as a nation, that you would protect us, that you would provide for us those who believe in you and trust you and fear you. But if not, Father, I pray that we would live as strangers and aliens, that we would remember that that's what we will always be, no matter how many you raise up. Father, I pray that you would bless our church and her members. I pray that you would, you would give them faith 
to wake up every morning and open your word. I pray that you would give, the, give us a hunger for your word, that we would, we would ingest it all the time, and that it would put our mind on things above. Father, I pray that you would, you would give us uh, a hunger to pray. Father, that we, we, even in our own individual prayer closets, would realize that, that we can pray about everything. We can pray about the changing of, of nations. We can pray and ask you because your power is limitless and you reign. And so we pray that we would, we, we ask that we would pray with faith, knowing that you, you can do all things. Father, I pray that you would, you would uh, strengthen your church. I pray that you would raise up those churches who love you, who honor you, who serve you, Father, who are not embarrassed by your word, but will preach your word, the whole counsel of your word. We pray that your spirit would be active in our, in our lands, in the world, bringing about revival, bringing about regeneration and birth into that kingdom of Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are mindful of us, that you are gracious to us, even though you rule over the entire universe, but you do it without any effort. And you are mindful of all the prayers of your people. Father, thank you for your, your, your kindness, for your love, for your graciousness to us. We thank you that you rule over us and that you are a good father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.